contemplative life is, on the whole, a hidden life. Contemplatives do not normally run parishes, do not lecture in universities. Their religious dress is not a familiar sight in our streets. And yet, their life is not meant to be completely hidden, for they are a sign to the world. The whole church is a sign raised on high, a sign of holiness and of God's love. But contemplatives are a special sign, an especially clear sign of holiness and of God's love, and a sign is meant to be seen. In our time, radio and television can raise that sign aloft for all men to see in a way that was not possible before, without prejudice to the contemplative's withdrawal from the world. We put a series of questions to members of different contemplative orders, both in the Church of England and in the Roman Catholic Church. The questions were designed to elicit a word picture of the contemplative life, but we felt that they ought also to mirror the off-centre ideas that people sometimes have of the contemplative life, and also the less-than-profound level at which their curiosity is sometimes active. Our first question took the following form. A few years ago, a Carthusian monk wrote in Doctrine and Life. A Carthusian is intransigent in his flight from the world, and he will admit no compromise which could in any way bring him back into contact with what he has left. He is aware that his attitude is not infrequently a cause of concern to many, even among Catholics, who do not understand a vocation which appears to show no immediate interest in them and their good. How would you justify the contemplative life to someone who fails to see the point of it? The first reply is from a Cistercian. I agree wholeheartedly with the Cartesian father's emphasis on separation from the world as an essential element of the contemplative life. It is not, however, so much a flight, a word that suggests fear or even disdain, but withdrawal. We withdraw from other pursuits in order to devote ourselves completely to the love, worship and direct service of God. The contemplative life exists primarily for God. It bears witness to his primacy, his transcendence, his absolute sufficiency. Because God is God, he has a right to our complete dedication and love. That is the ultimate justification of the contemplative life. Another Cistercian. I disagree with the Carthusian. We have the worst part of the world within ourselves. What's outside us or outside the walls of the monastery is of little account. It's this type of approach which we hope uh, Vatican II will overthrow in time, and it is this and much more like it that makes the mystery of our calling a double mystery to the man in the street. To convince one who does not see the point of uh, the contemplative life would require quite a lot of burnings and tearings up, for practically few spiritual writers have got a correct concept of it themselves. But to explain our life to one who does not see its point, I would stress that there are as many ways to God as there are temperaments or natural propensities to seek for God. I would point out that uh, the notion that all contemplatives are within the narrow confines of religious life cannot be maintained. 
Many live and die outside the field of the institutional religious life of the Church. The only difference between these two groups, those within and those outside institutional religious life, is that on the way to perfection, religious abandon and yet use the goods of the world, whereas the others must know how to possess and use. Both ways have, in view of the end and final result, almost equal difficulties. A Benedictine of the Church of England. Flight from the world, I understand to be a rejection of worldly standards, values, in the Pauline sense of worldliness. Insofar as contact with these would hinder constant contact with God and his design for us all, I try constantly not to be held back by their dead-end outlook, but to refer all that speaks of God to God, to embrace all his creation and universe, so that my own part in his design will not deflect the flowing back of all creation to the Creator, but will promote this return, requires a constant awareness of God's presence and a reaching out to find his will and purpose in and beyond creation as we know it. I understand contemplation to be just this, the practice of a constant awareness of God's life in all things, and the consequent attention demanded by this awareness requires that I, who am easily distracted, must keep looking at God, finding him and his will in the day's circumstances, my response of love will be made in the context and through the persons and events he permits and desires to be the way to him. A Cistercian of the Church of England. Just as, let us say, the poet or the scientist involved in some specialist work needs to stand apart from the everyday world of business in order to achieve his best insights and to take his rightful place in the whole complex of society, so the monk must stand apart from the world. In his case, it is so that he may more easily take his part in the redeeming work of Christ. Paradoxically, the man with this vocation feels the urgent need to be involved most deeply in the saving work of the Church of God, but he can only do this by standing apart from the pressures of the world. To be involved in a limited way in some evangelistic work, let us say, is to the monk a limitation. He needs the whole world and the universe as his parish, and this he can only do by subordinating himself entirely to the will of God, as our Lord did at the supreme moment of history and the consummation of his sacrifice of himself on the cross. This was the moment when, humanly speaking, our Lord was quite impotent, unable to speak a word of consolation or to heal or to raise the dead. Only by his death to the world could he bring new life to all men. Our second question was this. Many people's experience of love is limited to the tissue of domestic affections. They tend to think, therefore, of your life as loveless. Would you comment on this? The first answer comes from a Benedictine. In the words of St. John, God has proved his love to us 
by laying down his life for our sakes, we too must be ready to lay down our lives for the sake of our brethren. We entered religion because Christ chose us. We choose to follow him and for him relinquish all rights to marriage, wealth, and all other amenities which may derive in a life other than the religious life. We may, we may well know a lot more about true love than people think. To love God fully means to have a great place in one's heart for all of his children, which all of us are. This is not merely a general love, but very warm and intimate, with the sincere effort never to be selfish. A Benedictine of the Church of England. My chief trouble is learning to love unselfishly, and what I desire is to be able to love freely. The many demands the self makes prevent this freedom from embracing all men and makes a willing love of God a thing of fits and starts. I do not want less love, but more and more generous love, and I am only miserable when self gets in the way. A Cistercian Roman Catholic. My own experience of love before entering the monastery would lead to the same conclusion, a loveless existence. But then I thought of love in terms of adolescent courting and the accompanying manifestations of affection, with the added note of sexual enjoyment handed to me on all sides. This type of love only made me wonder was there more to it than that. Why, for example, did the film stars not become happy? Some with all the advantages went on the rocks. Even now, after five years' trial, I still haven't become a great lover, though I'm in love all right. For me, love means the same as it means for Christ in due proportion. An insight into the passion and resurrection is the key to love. We have it in marriage, but something more than kisses and embraces the length that each is prepared to go for the other. On the part of the Father, the passion and resurrection is the supreme manifestation of his love for the Son, while on the part of Christ, the same is true. As we must enter into the same relation to God our Father, we have to become like Christ. Just what this involves is the answer to our life, a life of love, Christ's life. A Cistercian of the Church of England. The only justification for the true monastic life is that it shall be a manifestation, an epitome of the love of Christ. The monastic family is intended to be a microcosm of the Church, the members of which are bound together in the love of God and who are recognised for what they are by their outgoing charity to all whom they meet. A Little Brother of Jesus this is a Roman Catholic order which requires its members to live a contemplative life in the world, striving to imitate the life of Jesus of Nazareth, and so sharing the same conditions of life as manual workers. That the life of a contemplative be loveless is a contradiction. Love is its justification. Without love of Jesus, and of one's brothers in the work of whose redemption one is called to share, the contemplative life has no meaning. The confusion, no doubt, springs from what one means by love. 
Our next question was this. Quite a number of people believe that contemplatives do not have to struggle with human failings, that once they enter the door of the monastery, they never look back. Would you care to comment? A Cistercian. I would. Such people must be incredibly silly. A little brother of Jesus. If someone is tempted to think that once he has joined a, a contemplative community, a man is no longer subject to human failings, I would only ask him to put a habit on for a while and then tell me if he feels different from what he was before. Very likely he will not, except that he has a habit on. Then I would tell him that a monk is not a kind of superman, but a very weak and frail creature, and that it is only when he has fully recognised his weakness and his nothingness that a man can leave the field wide open to God to transform him into a new creature. The just man that the monk wishes to become is not of his own making, but a new creature shaped by God. A benedictine of the Church of England. At the ceremony of clothing, the postulant who is about to become a novice comes into the monastic choir dressed in an ordinary suit. His jacket is then removed and the monastic habit is put on him. But it is just the same man inside the monk's habit as it was in the suit. If he or anyone else is so silly as to suppose that because he is wearing different clothes he will henceforth never have any of the ordinary temptations which afflict human beings, he will quickly be deceived. When I was about to enter the monastery at the age of 18, most of my relatives were deeply shocked. I was running away from the world, said one of my aunts. No, my mother replied, you are going into the front line. I cannot, of course, say whether I should have had more struggles with human failings if I had not become a monk. I can only say that as a monk I have had plenty and have lost all too many of them. A Cistercian, Roman Catholic. Uh, the people who think that contemplatives do not have to struggle against human failings are completely mistaken. The contemplative life brings to the surface all that is bad in our nature for ourselves and often for everybody else to see. This exper experience challenges a monk to do something about his sorry condition. Uh, this is a lifetime's task, the immensity of which becomes more obvious with the passage of the years. Those who never look back after their entry into the monastery are very rare exceptions. Uh, most monks will recall the many re resolutions they made in their early days to pack up and go. They will sympathize too with the venerable cleric of 70 or thereabouts, who surprised the bus conductor with the request, pray for me that I may persevere in my vocation. We asked next, do you ever have the urge to leave your monastery and take up parish work? This first reply is from a Cistercian in the Church of England. No monk who is convinced of his vocation has the slightest desire I feel sure, to go away and take up active work in a parish. For him, this would make complete nonsense of everything. A Cistercian, Roman Catholic. I have never had this urge to go out to parish work. This temptation arises when the work given one to do appears in itself trivial and of little consequence or utility. But in truth, 
that is, to the eye of faith. Small works acquire greatness by reason of the majesty for whom they are done. Our next question was, how would you describe the role of penance in your life? Mrs. Tertian. It is hard to know what to say about this. We are supposed to be penitential, but I don't find the penance difficult. We have vigils and fasts, the scriptural penances, and so the best. We take the discipline once a week. I found that hard as a novice. Now it scarcely costs me a thought. I don't think I take it as hard now, or else my skin has got thicker. My back used to be sore for a whole day then. Now it is only a bit painful when actually taking it. I think penance is absolutely necessary and is not preached enough. There's a good deal about it in the gospel and in the lives of all the saints. Even John the Twenty-Third emphasizes it. It makes a satisfaction for sin, for our own sins and for those of others. It is extinguishes, our, extinguishes our vices, elevates our understanding. St. Thomas is reported to have fasted when he met sticklers, and it bestows virtues and rewards, as the preface for Lent says. Many of the prayers in the liturgy, especially during Lent, are sheer hypocrisy if one is not fasting. It stresses the corporal penance too. I don't see how we can get around it. Of course, it doesn't take the first place, as some seem to think. Another suggestion. For me, the most penitential aspect of one's life is his constant pressure. There are no free days or holidays, no let-ups in the interior effort or in the circumstances of one's daily life. What role, we asked next, do the saints play in your life? Some of us think of the saints only when we want something. Do you think that this is what saints are for, mainly? A cistercian. To be sure, the saints are useful intercessors for us in heaven. But this is very far from being all, or even mainly, what the saints are for. The example they give us is surely the greatest service they do us. The Church, in canonizing saints, proposes them to us as models. They are men and women who made a success of life, not from the worldly point of view, but from God's point of view. Fortunately, hagiographers today are giving us a saner and unexaggerated view of the saints. We find in modern lives of the saints an unvarnished picture of them with their temptations, frustrations, struggles, and even flaws. We see how these men and women used those very things which loom so large in the life of the ordinary run of men and women in their achievement of holiness. They became holy not so much in spite of these things, but rather because of them. We can do the same. A Benedictine of the Church of England. Only as a very small boy did I think that saints could be manipulated. God's saints are near him because they have answered his particular call to be there. Because we are all in Christ, there is nothing of his providing that we may not share with them. Their very state of unity with his will must mean that their prayers and inspirations 
could not possibly procure anything for us that would be contrary to that divine will. But this is not to say that they are not aware of our real need or of our childlike notion of the benefit of having friends at court. A Cistercian of the Church of England. The saints are most real when with them I join in the universal worship of heaven in the Eucharistic liturgy. For this is the vital point at which the Church on earth realizes its true nature as living at the end of the ages in the consummation which the saints have reached. This is Durshan, Roman Catholic. Well, interestingly, I think, this year's commemoration of 1916 provides us with a close analogy of the role of the saints in Christian life. It is a historical fact that the whole effort towards independence, right through to 1922 or even 1923, was galvanized by the fact of 1916. And so it will be as long as the nation exists. Men did or did not agree with the wisdom of their action, and probably always will and will not agree with it. From the military point of view, it was a fiasco, from the point of view of their own personal survival, it was practically suicidal. But the inescapable fact that no practical argument can ever assail is that freedom was triumphantly achieved in the spirits of that small group of men. They were like men who had crossed the sonic wall and passed into a new world of spiritual liberty. Once that had been accomplished in the spearhead, eventual freedom was inevitable. Till then, it had been humanly impossible. Now, something similar seems to be the role of the saints. They carry forward and repeat the triumph of Christ's victory. Just as in the life of a nation, so in the spiritual life, the great enemy is the clawing scandal of everyday life, which seems to blot out, in a sort of mass discouragement, the possibility of victory, and obscure even the very issue at stake. Saints are people who have achieved the impossible, and by that very fact leave the world thereafter shaken and ill at ease. And I suppose Christians might be well described as people ill at ease in this world. We asked next, what do you think of the work of the Ecumenical Council? How will it affect the contemplative orders? A Cistercian, Roman Catholic. It can be compared to what is said in Genesis, let there be light. It is, a, it is a burning and a shining light, the fruit of the ever-present Spirit who guides the Church. Through it he has given direction and changed direction. To change direction from narrowness and restrictions, this means great things for the future. The Church looks out on the world, the bishops are looking to serve it. Through it all have grown in the knowledge of what is facing Christians today. The Church has now a greater realization of the multiple aspects of the human spirit as befits her catholicity and re-evaluates a Christianity concentrated a little too exclusively on the spiritual salvation of the individual in the life beyond, but not enough on the salvation of the whole world. A Benedictine, Church of England. A Roman Catholic Benedictine abbot, whom I met yesterday in Westminster Abbey, 
said to me on an earlier occasion, we religious have a special part to play in the ecumenical field because we understand one another. And this was demonstrated in two conferences held last year, one at Downside Abbey in England, in which young Catholic and Anglican men religious took part, and the other at Boston in America, where the participants were again Catholics and Anglicans, but this time of both sexes. A similar conference, for men only, is to take place at Assisi this April. These are illustrations of the effects of the Vatican Council on one particular aspect of the life of religious communities. A Cistercian of the Church of England. As an Anglican, I think that the Ecumenical Council's work has only just begun now that the official sessions have come to an end. I rejoice in the new spirit at work, which is surely of the Holy Spirit. It will affect the contemplative orders, I imagine, in giving them the opportunity to be themselves more realistically than they have been, say, for the past 300 years. I mean, to enable them to live out the life of the monk as we understand this in the present resourcement. Our next question was, what do you think of the renewal of the liturgy that is now taking place in the church? Does it affect you? Would you like to have a choral divine office in the vernacular, a Benedictine Roman Catholic? I would like to have everything in the vernacular. The liturgy is made up of signs, and these signs are meant to instruct, not to hide. As people in general become accustomed to the great ideas expressed by the liturgy, they will begin to live them fully in their lives, and that will be death to the sham and the shabby. Religion will become a colorful thing because the scriptures and the liturgy are colorful things. Wasn't our Lord a poet? A poet who could charm his listeners with the music of his words. And how much in keeping with the Irish temperament? He could look at a shepherd herding his sheep and speak of himself as the good shepherd who lays down his life for his flock. He could appreciate man's taste for good wine and work a miracle at the, at the marriage feast of Cana that would express eternal life as a great banquet at which he personally would give the wine of salvation. He knew the fellowship that a meal shared inspires and so he made the central act of our worship a Eucharistic banquet. But these signs are not just for religious orders alone. They are for everybody. The member of a contemplative order can do something, however, to make them known and appreciated. He can, by his example, help other people, business people, professional people, the whole gamut of lay people, to discover the great biblical and liturgical signs in their own lives and to follow these signs where they lead, that is, to God. A Cistercian Roman Catholic. I would not like the choral office in the vernacular. I wouldn't mind if it were in Irish, but I wouldn't fancy praying the office in English at all. I don't think it would make the Psalms any clearer than in Latin. It would be help in some of the lessons. St. Leo, for example but many of the prayers are just untranslatable, and I prefer them in Latin. A Cistercian Roman Catholic. 
The Holy Week liturgy is wonderfully improved. The divine office has been simplified somewhat. As to the use of the vernacular, well, I just don't know. I would be all for having the lessons at vigils in the vernacular immediately. After that, I would move more slowly. Perhaps some communities could be given permission to experiment and to make no general change till the findings would be examined. It would be a tragedy if we jumped too quickly and had regrets afterwards. A Cistercian I would not like to have choral divine offers in the vernacular, but if the order introduces it, I will have enough ecumenical spirit to accept it. A Cistercian The renewal of the liturgy is a wonderful thing, and it does definitely affect us. That much follows obviously from the premises that the liturgy is the worship of the Church, and that we, like all other Christians, live by the Church. And one might add that our need of this renewal was little, if anything, less than that of the average Catholic. There was, and there still is, a great deal of formalism in our praying of the liturgy. Another Roman Catholic Cistercian. Uh, the choral vernacular office is a delicate question. Personally, I have a great desire to see it introduced, and I think it is safe to say that this, share, that this desire is shared by the majority of the members of our order. Recently, however, the Holy See has ruled that the Latin liturgy must be retained in clerical, in clerical religious orders. Although, in fact, less than half the members of our order and of our own monastery are clerics, uh, we come under this ruling. For some years, those who are not clerics have been saying the office in English. These continue to do so, with the result that we have two groups saying the same office in different languages. We all very much hope that authorization may eventually be obtained to permit the whole community to pray the divine office together in the vernacular. Uh, we feel that prayer comes easier and is more authentic in the language of everyday life. A Cistercian of the Church of England. It is essential that the liturgical life of the whole Church should be renewed, both in our understanding of what the Church does when it makes the unique and sublime Eucharistic offering and in our understanding of the prayer of the divine office, the contemplative communities will be given tools for their stock and trade, which they have sadly lacked for centuries. It may not be too strong to say that just when the monastic movement began in the fourth century, the church had just lost the key to an integral understanding of what she was doing in Christian worship. Since then, in all the splendor of the external worship of Christendom, we have been, as it were, going about Jerusalem with candles and lanterns, without finding any real unity of spirituality, such as the Church of the Martyrs possessed, without knowing it. From now on, we shall all be able to live the liturgy. Our next question was, how can you live closely together without getting on each other's nerves? A Cistercian Roman Catholic. There is, of course, a possibility of men getting on each other's nerves. That was probably what St. John Berkmans had in mind when he said that his greatest mortification was the common life. 
Statistics would probably show that for most monks, the common life at some time or another imposed a strain which possibly reached the level of a crisis. But a genuine vocation generally consolidates itself in the weathering of a crisis of one sort or another. So what matter, so long as charity wins out in the end? Perhaps in the minds of those who find it hard to believe that men can so live together is the notion that the religious life establishes a bond of natural affection of the same kind as family feeling in the members of a community. That is quite mistaken. Any attempt to live on natural lines would be bound to end in failure. The natural ersatz substitute could only degenerate rapidly. Such a bond there may seem to be, but that is in reality maintained perpetually by a supernatural consciousness and deliberate effort under the influence of grace. A benediction of the Church of England. I think we all recognize that human beings, wherever they occur in groups, are going to rob each other. The important thing to keep in mind is that it would be extremely difficult to practice charity and the other Christian virtues in a vacuum. If we keep at it, in the end, even the abrasions of close contact can become reasons for gratitude to God and our brethren for this family, these irritations. This is the setting of our journey into God, who saw it so. But I am not so good at this as yet. A Cistercian of the Church of England If you have the vocation, it can be done. Our next question was, do you ever feel useless? A Cistercian Roman Catholic. In all my saner moments, I feel useless. A Cistercian of the Church of England. A monk cannot avoid feeling sometimes that he is a fraud. But if he has a vocation, he will come through these patches of feeling useless with a strengthened belief that in his life God is using him to the utmost extent, although he can never realize this. He knows above all, in his uselessness, that he is sharing the burden of mankind at its deepest point. What is man that thou art mindful of him? A benediction, Roman Catholic. More and more, as time goes on, this makes me realize how much I need God, how dependent I am on his help, understanding, great mercy and eternal loving-kindness. A little brother of Jesus. Yes, feelings are something over which we have not full control. Although wholly convinced of the value of the contemplativification, one may feel pretty useless at times and be tempted to discouragement. A Cistercian, Roman Catholic. Uh, if you mean by this, do I sometimes feel that monastic life is a waste of time? The answer is no. If you mean, do I sometimes realize how far short I fall of the standards set by the monastic life? The answer is yes. Another Cistercian. I never feel any other way, but I don't get upset. 
the useless things of this world can be chosen by God for producing effects out of all proportion. So we live in hope. Our next question was, have you any reflections on the story of Martha and Mary? Do you ever feel sorry for Martha? A Cistercian Roman Catholic. They are both saints commended by the Lord, though with different ideas on catering. A little brother of Jesus. For me, it describes the differences of vocation. Vocation is a personal affair between Christ and each person, and it is not for any one of us to make comparisons in this domain. No, I don't feel sorry for Martha. It's a question of different personalities. Martha probably would have found it difficult to have sat and listened to Jesus while she knew there was work to be done to prepare the meal. For Mary, it would have been the opposite. A Cistercian. I often feel sorry for myself. So I often feel sorry for Martha, who felt sorry for herself. She was afraid our Lord didn't notice what a great worker she was. Our last question was, what do you miss most in the world you have left? A benedictine of the Church of England. This question is really stunning, for I honestly miss quite a lot. It is therefore a bit difficult to say what I miss most. I think perhaps it is a sense of not having realized human relationships. I'm not here thinking solely of marriage. There is a sense of unfinished business that I could have made many more people more happy, that I might have loved more. Yet I do know that in our Lord, I do not now love them less, probably more, and certainly less selfishly. A Cistercian Roman Catholic. I have never really missed anything, but if I expressed a velleity, it would be for hurling and cycling. Somehow one feels that one has lost nothing provided one finds God, in whom one finds all in a more sublime manner. A Benedictine Roman Catholic. Well, I can honestly say I miss nothing. Habio omnia et abundo. A little brother of Jesus. What I miss most of what I have left is not a certain comfort, television and so forth. It is the possibility of having a life humanly fulfilling. And possibly the hardest sacrifice is the sacrifice of a family, wife and children, which is so natural for every man. A Cistercian Roman Catholic. What I miss most is feminine companionship and the effects girls had on my heart. Not that I want them back, but the longing for their attention has to be filled with something greater. And until I really experience the reality of God, they have an attraction for me. Another feature of life now cut off is the freedom of traveling and getting experience of places, always of course with money in my pocket to make me feel independent. A Cistercian of the Church of England. It will be clear from my earlier answers that I feel that in one sense the monk has not left the world. He is closer to it because he fulfills his vocation faithfully. He may miss the beautiful things of civilized society 
and the delight of making new friends, but he will have no regrets. The Cistercian, Roman Catholic. You may think me a hypocrite now, but that question leaves my mind a blank. I sincerely do not think of anything that the world has to offer for which I long. And on the other hand, the peace and the quiet which we have apart from the world and the freedom from the present-day spirit of competition is all very attractive. Saying that may leave one to the accusation that we leave the world as a form of escapism to escape the competition. I rather think that these advantages are part of the hundredfold given to us in order that we can be preoccupied with God. And our vocation really boils down to that. A missioner, I think, is preoccupied with his souls. A doctor is preoccupied with his patients. A married man is preoccupied with his wife. Well, in the same way, a monk is preoccupied with God.